Hi friends, this is Jeff. Thank you for tuning in to the Unchained Gospel Podcast, where we let the lion out of its cage in order to set the captives free from theirs. The following is part three of a three-part series entitled Spotless and Spirit-Filled. So I just wanted to take a a moment to talk about the seven sayings, um, because oftentimes we read through the books or the Gospels in their parts, but we don't really collaborate the, the account together and look at look at it for what it is. Um, but I was really, uh, I've heard a couple people talk about the seven sayings, and it's just really astounding to me how Jesus, it's essentially that he's describing what he's accomplishing on the cross by the things that he says while he's on the cross. And when we look at him at face value, we don't necessarily see that. But uh, the first one, obviously, being in Luke 23, verse 32, he's, it, it says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. So the first thing that we see Jesus say from the cross is, forgive forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So the first word is a word of absolution. He's forgiving the people who are crucifying him. Not that they don't know what they're doing. They know that they're crucifying him. They know that they are fulfilling what they believe to be the law because they saw Jesus as a blasphemer. But what I think is interesting about this is we know the whole story. We know that Jesus was coming to earth to die. But I think sometimes when we actually look at the crucifixion scene, we see Jesus as the victim and and they're mistreating him when essentially it says in Isaiah that it pleased the Lord to bruise him um, and that the chastisement of our peace is upon him. And it's kind of weird to think about it this way, but in their very act of crucifying Jesus, they were facilitating the act of redemption that God had planned from before the foundation of the world. So they were, uh, in essence, following God's plan for those people to be the ones who would put Jesus to death. And Jesus is saying they don't know that what they're doing is actually providing the means for them to have salvation were they to put their faith in Christ. And I find that really interesting because it's not really an aspect that I ever thought about. Uh, I just kind of thought of it as they're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. But there's an aspect of it that, you know, God orchestrated those events to take place, whether he was born in Rome and was crucified there. You know, everything played together for forgiveness to be offered through salvation in Jesus Christ on the cross. And uh, I find that when we're preaching the gospel, it's important for us to include the seven elements that Jesus speaks of from the cross. Uh, The first one being forgiveness, obviously. We know the gospel brings forgiveness and absolution of our sins when we put our faith in him. Uh, And the second thing that we see of Jesus saying is, as you know, the the criminals on the right hand and on the left hand, the one blaspheming, the other one joining in initially, and then seeing something in Jesus' character, uh, probably hearing him absolving the people who crucified him of their sins and recognizing divinity there, recognizing uh, the divine authority uh, to ask Jesus to then remember him when he comes into his kingdom. I don't know if maybe this guy had heard Jesus speak on different occasions, you know, uh, but what I find really interesting is we see the, the man on, we always look at the man who turns to Jesus and we go, ah, the other guy didn't, his loss. But to, to humanize the story, I find it really interesting. If you remember who was supposed to be on the middle cross, if you look at the account, it wasn't supposed to be Jesus, right? It was Barabbas, who the Gospels say was a murderer. And we see Jesus taking the place of a murderer 
and the two thieves being on the cross next to them. And you can start to put yourself and you see the same arguments 2,000 years ago on the cross that we see today, which is, are you saying that all I have to do is turn to Jesus? And even though I, you know, and a guy on death row can become a Christian and he gets to go to heaven and I don't, that doesn't, that doesn't seem fair. So you can almost see the, the man who's blaspheming Jesus saying, I'm a thief. If there was anybody whose place you should have taken, it should have been mine, not the murderous Barabbas. So you see him spewing the, you know, the vitriol towards Jesus and the other man saying, we deserve this. He didn't do anything wrong and recognizing in Jesus that there is salvation. And what's interesting is in the account here, the word save appears like eight times. It says in verse 35, picking up from where I was just reading, the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other rebuked, saying, Do not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And again, another aspect, the second word that we hear from Jesus is a word of salvation and a word of acceptance into the kingdom. So first we had absolution and forgiveness, and then we have salvation and acceptance, which I find really interesting. These are all aspects, when we preach the gospel, these should be things that, and I have to be reminded of, you kind of have to put it through this filter, because this is the very gospel that we preach. It's Jesus Christ crucified, buried, risen again. But oftentimes we start to come up with a formula, and we don't think about the very things that Jesus actually was saying from the cross. And then the third thing, which is kind of more of an abstract thing, but I find it really interesting nonetheless, is in John 19, we see uh, John gives us this insight into the cross where Mary's there and John is there. And he says, woman, behold your son and son, behold your mother. And even in Jesus's darkest hour, he's actually thinking of other people. He's never saying, woe is me. You know, the first three things he says are directed towards other people. And then the final, um, of the three of the final four are uh, proclamations that he's making. He's saying, you know, he's speaking to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, receive my spirit. But then he says, it is finished and I thirst. Uh, but when he's talking to Mary at the cross, he provides for her a place to live. Uh, we don't know if at this time, we know many of Jesus' siblings probably didn't believe in him up to this point, or at least didn't come to a saving faith. We see that he appears to James. Uh, Paul mentions that in, in Acts, or, or one of the epistles, I believe. Uh, but Jesus, through his death on the cross, is providing, there's provision there. And not only that, but he's he's finding a home for the widow, for the you know for the orphan, for, for whatever it is. And we see God's heart for the, the, the fatherless, for those that are outcasts, there's a verse in Isaiah that says he's a father to the fatherless, defender of widows. Uh, he, he, he places the, the, the solitary in families. And that is what, a huge aspect of the gospel that I think sometimes when we preach the gospel, we tend to drive people away or cause isolation as opposed to welcoming, welcoming them into a family, that, which is really what it is. We all become united through the Holy Spirit as the family of God. In Ephesians, it talks about how we are 
fellow citizens in the household of God. And what an important aspect of the gospel when we preach to say, you are now connected. God is giving you provision. If you were raised raised by an alcoholic father or an abusive uh, father or an absentee father or uh, a crazy mother, whatever it is, you have that, you can set that aside. You can love me more than your family and I will give you a family that provides the needs that you really desire, the spiritual needs that you have for for accountability, for, for love, for acceptance, the things that even our earthly relationships don't give us the way they, sh- they were intended to originally. And I find that that is a, a part that I, the more I think about it and, and talk about it is, is something I know has been lacking from my gospel presentation or the gospel that I preach or live is that aspect of community that comes from the gospel of uniting. And we know that the, uh, it's not just uniting, uh, the Jews together and, and, you know, with Gentiles, but just uniting all people. If, if I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself, Jesus said. So I find that interesting that while he's on the cross, he is drawing people together and he's making provision for them, not saying, hey, I need something, but you have a need. And I recognize that even through the sweat and the blood that's pouring down into my eyes, I can see your need. And, and he shows extra care with his mother, Mary. And unfortunately, Mary's received a, a bad rap on both sides, either Catholicism has exalted her to equal to God, or Protestantism has gone the other way and made it like, ah, eh, she's just some woman, who cares who she is? Instead of really recognizing how Jesus elevated her and Jesus uh, treated her, she experienced something that no other person could uh, could experience, which is raising God in human flesh. Uh, so I think it's it's important that we don't we don't stray too far from what the Bible says about Mary, um, and it's very important that Jesus provides for her in that moment. And then uh, the fourth thing, obviously, is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which we could talk about forever. Uh, some people argue, well, God wasn't really forsaking him. He was just, you know, he was quoting Psalms and, and that kind of thing. But I, I, I really believe that if Jesus became our substitutionary atonement, that the sin was placed on Jesus, and God uh, used this uh, the very event to essentially show to us that he was separating the sin from the sinner uh, by judging the sin apart from the sinner. Does that make sense? He put the sin on Christ, and in judging that, he unleashed all of the wrath, which we don't like to talk about, the fact that God has wrath, but um, he judged that sin on Christ. And Martin Luther, there's a story that he was just pacing and pacing and reading this over and over again for hours and hours and he didn't get up from his room and all this little uh, mentees or whatever were wondering what he was doing and he finally just threw up his hands and said God forsaken of God who can understand it and he closed the book and he left like there's no way that we can fully understand what happened in that three hours of darkness that made Jesus cry out and say my God my God you forsaken me but what we can see is that through Christ we never have to experience that forsaking God says I will never leave you or forsake you and it's, it's in Christ becoming the sin, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, that he became sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness. Jesus experienced that physical separation or spiritual separation, which was, in a sense, it was the separating of our sin from ourselves so that God could judge the sin without having to judge us because he's holy and we could never enter into his presence without our sin being atoned for. And Jesus accomplished that once and for all. Uh, the fifth thing is another kind of obscure thing. Uh, when he just cries out, I thirst. And we know that he wanted to wet his wet his tongue so that he could proclaim victory from the cross, saying it is finished. But there is a lot to be to, to dig out of these two words, which is actually only one word in the Greek. 
uh, for him to say, I thirst. Uh, but what I find interesting is that only appears in the Gospel of John. And John talks about Jesus being the living water. Or he talks about water and thirst more than any other Gospel writer. So I find that's really interesting. In John is where we see Jesus saying, Come to me if you're thirsty, and I will uh, give you living water. Uh, and out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. So there's this aspect of Jesus satisfying our thirst by experiencing a thirst that we could never truly understand. Obviously, it was a physical thirst, and it, it reflects his humanity on the cross. But there's also an aspect of it where Jesus is, uh, like it says in, in Hebrews, he suffers so that he's able to aid those who suffer. So we can't say, Jesus, you don't know what it's like to thirst, to have this unquenchable thirst. Yeah, he does. He died on the cross and was poured out of all his blood uh, in, in the hot sun at 12 o'clock. Obviously, it's not like that right now. But um, uh, I, what I find really interesting is that the other time in the Gospel of John that we see Jesus asking for a drink is at the well with the Samaritan woman. And he asks her to give him a drink, which, you know, he's the son of God. He doesn't necessarily have to do that. But he uses that as an opportunity to show her that she's been satisfying her thirst with the wrong things. And when Jesus says on the cross, I thirst... He is pointing to the, the fact that we come and have our, our thirst quenched in him and only him. And I find that really interesting if you go back and read John 4, how he says, you know, you've had five husbands. The one you're with is not your husband. Whatever you're seeking to satisfy your thirst, it's not doing it. It's not, it's not accomplishing it. And you can come to me. And if you drink of the water that I give you, you'll never thirst again. And it's easy for Jesus to have said that. But then he went and experienced such an excruciating thirst so that we would never have to experience that thirst if we turn to him. I find that really cool. And then obviously he says, it is finished from the cross. And we know that he also says in that same story in John 4, when they say they go to find food for him, and that's how he has the opportunity to talk to the Samaritan woman. He says, my, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Um, and that is essentially what Jesus is proclaiming from the cross. Um, we look back in Genesis 22, and I find this picture really cool, is that it says that Abraham said to his servants, you stay here, and the lad and I will go worship, and we will come again to you. And what I see in that, the, you know, the type there is that no service can get you to the place where the father and the son are making the sacrifice. You know, the servants are left behind so that the father and son can worship God through the sacrifice that God ordained. And I see that in the cross as well. Jesus is completing the work of himself. When they, they came to try to numb him with the, the, the myrrh and all that stuff, he refused it because he was completing the work. And we can't add to it. We can't take away from it. It's finished. And we find our faith in that. Because if we try, as soon as we try to add, we're taking away from the completed work that Christ accomplished on the cross. Um, and religion tries to add it you know as far as uh, you know religion is, is is not a bad thing in and of itself but when it starts to add rungs to the ladder beyond faith in christ that's when it starts to become uh dead orthodoxy essentially but but it's really important that we understand that it's faith in the completed work of cross just like it says in in uh, numbers to look to the serpent on the pole and be saved even though that seems so strange jesus became that type of sin and that it, by placing our faith in that completed work there is how we have salvation. And then finally, uh, Jesus says, um, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gives up the ghost at that moment. And not coincidentally, at that very moment, we have the, the veil in the temple is torn that separates the, the holy 
place from the Holy of Holies, uh, something that was only for the priests to go into in the, uh, on the high day once a year to give the, the Day of Atonement, to atone for the sins of the people and for the priest himself. Uh, and I find it really interesting because we have a word of reconciliation. Jesus had been separated when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Once the work was completed, there's reconciliation that takes place because the sin has been judged apart from the sinner. Now we have the ability through the spirit of Jesus, which he turned over to God, that very spirit raised Christ from the dead and that he breathed the Holy Spirit onto his disciples. And that is when we have that indwelling Holy Spirit, we now have the ability to be reconciled to God in a way that we hadn't experienced since the Garden of Eden when sin entered the picture. Um, so we have this reconciliation that's possible through Jesus yielding his spirit to God, the spirit then raising Christ from the dead, and that same spirit, as it says in Romans, is what gives life to our mortal bodies. And the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that uh, we are you know, fellow members in the household of God. We're built and knit together into a dwelling place for God, which is his spirit. So not only did he reconcile man and God, but as we had said before, he reconciled all people because the Holy Spirit is the same in each of us. And I just am so amazed when we look at the seven things. It's a word of absolution, a word of salvation, a word of, a word of connection or provision, a word of separation, which is the sin from the sinner, a word of desperation, that crying out for thirst. Uh, also, you look at it as a word of satisfaction, to find satisfaction in, in the, uh, the living water that Jesus provides. Uh, the word of completion, which is it is finished. And a word of reconciliation, which is the yielding of our spirits to God so that he can give us of his spirit so that we can all be connected to God the way we were created to be. Uh, so just as we look at these things and, and as we go through the rest of Good Friday, I think it's important that we not just look at the, the act that Jesus did on the cross, but we... We look at the things that he said, because as we know with Jesus, he didn't say anything that didn't have meaning. He, he was not, he thought he chose his words carefully. He wasn't a rambler. So uh, even if I may be a rambler, Jesus wasn't. So every word that is in red, if you have a red letter Bible, especially when Jesus is accomplishing the completed work on the cross, is, is very important for us to think about and dwell on, and especially today of all days. Um, I think it was cool to kind of just summarize those seven things and uh, hopefully be ministered to by them. So, anybody have anything they'd like to add to or share? <clears throat> well, thank you guys for coming out. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm just really blessed to be used... Uh, to, you know, God's, God's calling us to be more bold. I really feel that way. Um, and when we see the, the, the persecution throughout the world and we see how in America Christians can kind of get comfortable with the regular uh, Sunday service attendance and that kind of thing, it, you know, I felt like it was God, God's about to do something, but he, he's calling us to be bold so he can do it through bold people. So, um, As you were just saying, yeah. uh, like, it is finished, you know? And you just think, like, there's really no other religion in the world that says your sins are hateful. You know? In fact, I had heard even Muhammad said in his last days, I'm not sure if I'm going to heaven, but I hope so. Yeah, even he was yeah. 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 It's like, 
Yeah, that's crazy. No one on this earth can know that it's finished or not. Yeah. <laughs> Except us. Yeah. That's awesome. And there's, yeah, there's a, uh, there's always a list of requirements to potentially yeah. earn yourself. Something that we have to do. To maintain it or whatever, yeah. It's crazy. It's awesome. So, I'll take the easy one. <laughs> yeah, the faded full one. I'd much rather have that. Right? We, the credit debit card analogy. Yeah, love <laughs> The Old Testament, their righteousness was credited to them. Now that we have Christ's righteousness, we get to debit from his account. <laughs> so, that's what Chris said, so... It's already there for us, and just to yield ourselves over to—it's uh, amazing to think about what if we were would yield ourselves, what God could do through us. Uh, and I'm challenged by that for sure because I, you know, I, I don't—I want to be awed by what God does through yeah. me, and just be like, "Wow, that was all God. That was, you know, that was not—I didn't bring anything to that table for sure." So, cool. Well, let's pray. Yeah. You know, it is the fact that it's so easy that stumbles a lot of people to speak. Yeah. Grandma, yep. You know, yeah. because she goes through that very thing that, oh, you mean this guy that was in prison, he's going to go and I've worked my whole life, I've gone to church my whole life, I've done all that. That That is a big stumbling block because what we say is so easy, it can't be so. They right. just can't yeah. believe that you don't have to crawl on your knees to a, a relic or, or kiss the foot of something or, you know. It was the same battle then. Yeah. Man, you always people. want to do something. Right. You always yeah. think we have a... Yeah. We somehow think that we're bringing exactly. something to the party. We're not. Yeah. <laughs> we try to work our way to go. Yeah. It's a reminder not to put your... You said your faith into any religion or any person or when you're sharing people, not to put their faith in you. Yeah. It's like, we'll... Even us, we'll constantly let people down. Yep. But it's always point to Christ. We have our own idols to fight. <laughs> yeah, somebody said that the heart is an idol factory. Yeah, right. I forget it was one of the, some old uh, some old preacher, G.K. Chesterton or something, like that. or maybe it was Calvin. I don't know. But he said that that's our the human heart is an idol factory. We if we don't have one, we'll find a way to make one. So, and so it's just it's important that we put you know, and that's why I like when he says like, uh, you know receive me into your kingdom or whatever the thief says you know like he recognized that even though Jesus and that's another point to, to point out is we put our faith in a risen Christ he was putting our faith in a dying man but he saw something in him that he was willing to yield every I mean, obviously he had nothing left to lose but he saw something in Christ as what the world would see as a loser or as a you know the one who was being punished he was able to recognize being an arm's length away from him that he was the son of God and he pay, he was paying for it all and his faith had to be fully rested on him the even law. though he couldn't add anything yeah, to it. You yeah. couldn't climb down from the cross and help an old lady across the street, you know? Right. Um, and the other thing is, is interesting is that God loves every person so much and this is what I have to be reminded of. He made it so that those two thieves would be crucified on the very day that Jesus would take the place of Barabbas so that if they had never encountered Jesus up to that point, they had the opportunity before their last breath to look into his eyes and to be an arm's length away from him, to see the character and the nature of Jesus, so that no one has an excuse, essentially. Like, that's how much God loves me, that's how much he loves you guys, is that he's willing to essentially orchestrate the events of history so that you are faced with the reality of who Jesus is, so that you can hopefully make the thief, the choice of the thief on the right hand, or left hand, depending, I don't know which, which view you're looking at, but the one who actually said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's 
Yeah. 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 And how oftentimes you know you hear about it, you you preach to somebody for years, and then some guy at work says, "Hey, you should come to my church," and they go and they get saved, and you're like, "What? I want that crown." No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it's like what you know, one waters, one 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 plants the seed, God brings the increase. So we just it's a yeah, it's a reminder to continually be praying for those people because we don't know where they're wrestling with God really is. We don't know where, how close they are or how far they are, you know, on the edge of eternity. But we all get that last breath. Um, I like what you said about the fact that when the sin was put on Jesus, he didn't see who we were. All you saw, all God saw was the sins. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, people's pride, especially when you point out that they're sinners, they don't want to hear that. Yeah. You know, what do you mean my lifestyle's wrong? What do you, you know? Yeah. But I like that, you know, that gives me a fresh perspective to witness to someone, to be able to say, God's not looking at and saying you're bad. He's looking at that sin. And that's what was on the cross. And, and yeah. I think that's, that's, you know, I've heard this kind of stuff a million times. It's a separated because, you know, yeah. it was the only way that God could judge the sin apart from the sinner was to take the sin and place it on a perfect mm-hmm. substitute, you know, because um, we wouldn't be able to stand before God with our sins. So, amen. Amen.